Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. This week, I'm joined by two esteemed guests to discuss the current political turmoil in Kazakhstan. Diana Kudagorgenova is a political sociologist based in Cambridge. Uh, she's studied different intersections of power relations through realms of political sociology, dealing with concepts of state, nationalizing regimes and ideologies. She's most recently the author of Toward Nationalizing Regimes, a book on comparative politics and nation building in post-Soviet democracies and non-DOP democracies. And she spent quite a lot of time studying Kazakhstan and the dynamics of the post-Nazarbayev protests and social movements in the country since 2019. We're also joined by Steve Swerdlow. He's a human rights uh, lawyer and associate professor of the practice of human rights in the Department of Political and International Relations at the University of Southern California. Prior to that, he was with Human Rights Watch uh, and was a representative in Kazakhstan and somebody I've known for quite a number of years now. Welcome to you both. Diana, I, I just want to turn it to you because I, I can't think of anybody better place to explain sort of what the hell has happened in Kazakhstan in the past. I guess it's, it's not quite accurate to say the past week because it sounds like this is something that's been brewing for quite a while. But if you could give us a, a sort of uh, a lay of the, the land here. Obviously, there have been protests. They've turned violent. Uh, there's been a, a storming of you know, the capital and political institutions, the airport. And today, the president has come out and basically given an order, shoot to kill, claiming that this is all just errant banditry and that these are foreign-sponsored agents of terrorism, et cetera, et cetera. The usual kind of kit and caboodle that, that takes place whenever there's any kind of protest movement in a, a post-Soviet country. But it, it, explain to us what's happening and sort of how we got here, if you, if you might. Hi, and thank you for having me today. Um, of course, you know, with, with this type of events that are evolving in front of our, our eyes, every interview I'm giving, you know, every day things completely change. And I was just reading my interview I gave in the beginning of the, of the process, and I was like, well, a lot of things have changed, actually. But yeah, in a nutshell, um, I think we can identify the situation as there are peaceful protests happening that erupted in the in Western Kazakhstan and the, the that were fueled by the unexpected uh, peak in um, in gas prices, and that was basically just a trigger to direct like you know socioeconomic grievances and issues of inequality and growing impoverishment of uh, population all, of, all over Kazakhstan. But these protests emerged first in the city of Janaozen, which is very symbolic for Kazakh uh, recent history. Um, that's where the first protests emerged in 2011 and, and uh, claimed uh, many lives of protests, unfortunately. And then obviously the, the protests kind of like spread across Western Kazakhstan and then in solidarity, which is very, very important, the peaceful protesters started coming out all across different cities in Kazakhstan. And then over the days from 3rd of and 4th of January, we could see how it was spreading basically in all 14 regions of, of Kazakhstan and, and in three major cities of Almaty, Shunkent, well, Nur Sultan, Astana, we call it both, both ways. I, I at least call it Astana sometimes in the capital city. And basically the protests in Almaty, uh, the, the peaceful protests that, that were happening overnight from the 4th to 5th of January became quite violent. And we could see the emergence of these destructive forces that are very violent, that are armed, uh, that emerge on the streets. They seem to be targeting both civilians and law enforcement officers. And they, you know, we, we've seen looters as well. We, we've seen all sorts of rioters. But unfortunately, it is the fact now that these destructive forces are using the peaceful protests and uh, stealing the agenda for their own purposes, for their own interests. They seem to be organized. They, they're armed. They're very violent. And the level of violence that they brought with them is something unprecedented and something we haven't seen in the past in, at all in, um, 
in Kazakhstan. But what's, what's very important, I think, is that the situation currently is developing in parallel, that there are peaceful protests in, in other parts of the country, and the discourse of peaceful protests should be separated from the violence that is ongoing. And the peaceful protests have been ongoing in Kazakhstan for the past decade. They were localized, they were not as massive as they are now, but nevertheless, they have been there. They reflected the grievances and inequalities and injustice, the social injustice are ongoing in Kazakhstan and caused by different economic uh, failures, the regime itself, with the corruption as well, it all factors in. And then what's happening right now with basically, uh, you know, the huge conflict in Almaty is that these destructive forces that are backed by somebody, by some group that are organized, basically, you know, they're pursuing their own interests and they're killing people. And that's um, that's basically in a nutshell what is happening. And, and some of the um, analysis that is emerging now is that these destructive groups, these destructive groups, they are, maybe they are the sign of certain power struggle, but it's still very much unclear. And the president's discourse, obviously, is that all of these groups are terrorists. There's no way uh, that the regime or the government will be in dialogue with them and all of them would be preferably eliminated because the order, as, as we heard from the last address today, the order is to shoot without warning. Right. And so, I mean, this makes it a little more complicated, right? I mean, it's not uh, entirely a peaceful protest movement. And then, you know, legitimate political grievances are now going to be easily conflated with violent disorder and acts of criminality and so on and so forth. I mean, do we know who or what sort of elements or interests might be behind the more violent side of things? And what they're what they're looking to achieve is it sort of opportunistically capitalizing on pro reform or democratic uh, you know civic movement or is there something else afoot? And that's the problem because as we know, Kazakhstan has been for the past uh, two and a half days in a complete uh, blockage. There is no internet. Yeah. it's very very hard to connect uh, with people. What what it means is that basically it's a huge space for disinformation for all sorts of conspiracy theories on not only on the ground but also outside but also with, with what I've been you know, stressing and paying attention to is that the, dwell, the, the Almaty, you know, people who live in Almaty right now, they're basically the hostages of the, of the situation because they hear that there is almost like a war going on in their city. There is a huge conflict with explosions, gunfire, people screaming, and, and they, you know, they, they basically know that there's certain conflict going on, but they have no access to information apart from state television and what the president and the government is telling them. And it's, of course, causing a lot of anxiety and panic. There are a lot of uh, casualties among the civilians and, and so on. But yes, you're right. In this disinformation, in this like you know, lack of independent sources, what is happening is that it just makes the whole situation a lot more complex. We don't know who are these groups. We don't know how complex they are, what, you know, what drives them. But one thing for certain, and that became uh, a public news uh, by the local police in Almaty, is that they captured a local criminal um, well, criminal leader. His nickname is Wild Arman. So that's kind of like, you know, well, and, and they claim that, that, again, under the presumption of innocence, but they claim that uh, he is one of the organizers of the, of the destructive and sort of criminal groups and, and mobs. But we don't know yet. That's the problem. That's, that's the answer to, to your question, more or less, in a nutshell. Yeah. Just in terms of the kind of general post-Soviet history of Kazakhstan, this is kind of an outlier nation among Central Asian countries in a sense. I mean, you know, there was a piece in the New York Times today kind of recounting, I think it was 1990, you know, the Bush administration sending uh, James Baker to meet with Nazarbayev to negotiate the nuclear disarmament of the country. And 
it seems that this was this was a Central Asian stand that had fairly good relations with the United States whilst also being, for obvious reasons, close to Moscow. Can you give me, I know we don't have, you know, this is something you could probably spend hours, if not days, trying to do, but could you give us a kind of overview of the trajectory or evolution of the country since the collapse of the Soviet Union and what, you know, it's, it seemed like it was, it was fairly, obviously there's social and, and economic inequality, as you can imagine, but it seemed like a, a fairly good success story in terms of the prosperity of the country in relation to some of its neighbors, yeah? Yes, definitely. And I think, uh, first of all, we need to kind of like, you know, step away a little bit from this discourse of the stance, because uh, first of all, these are like, you know, legitimate states, and they're not, they're very different, all of them. My whole work has been like dedicated to explaining the Central Asia is very complex and it's not you know connected in, in very much similarities, but actually what unites is, is different. But Kazakhstan is definitely like, you know, it's the biggest player. It's the second biggest country after Russia in, in the region, in the post-Soviet region. I mean, of course, it, uh, like Ukraine and, and Russia it did have nuclear um, arms at, at the end of the, I mean, when, when the Soviet Union collapsed. But of course, it was the, as the country that also hosted major nuclear weapons testing for most part of the Soviet testing program, nuclear testing program, Kazakhstan disarmed. Um, it was always, you know, kind of like uh, propelling this idea of a, of a peaceful nation, anti-nuclear nation, because we were the victims of these testings. And we had a number of movements that were anti-nuclear movements and so on. But Kazakhstan is a big player, definitely. And it's Russia's biggest ally in the region. Um, its geography also defines its, you know, geopolitical importance. It's bordering China and Russia. As I said, it's the biggest state in Central Asia, and it, it is on the way of becoming this kind of like regional hub, not only economically, but also politically, and being like a very strong regional player. And in the, in the trajectory, just you know, briefly, uh, of, of its independence, of course, it was a very stable country, despite of um, it's a very multi-ethnic, uh, multi-confessional country as well. And it's a very peaceful sort of like, you know, we, we had certain conflicts, uh, but they were not major in terms of inter-ethnic conflicts. They were not breaking down into major incidents and wars, for example, or secessionist conflicts that were happening all over Soviet Union, all over post-Soviet space at that time. And Kazakhstan escaped that history. Although um, there were certain forces that were saying that, you know, Kazakhstan might, might be that following that scenario. So, and it's been more or less a stable development of uh, presidential republic where President Mazabayev has been in power for 30 years. He did in- enjoy quite a lot of, you know, popularity among the people. There was a lot of economic growth throughout the, the post-independence years, especially with, with the oil boom that allowed uh, for the, you know, um, for building large infrastructures, building the, the capital city that be, used to be the pride of, of the country, used to be the pride sort of of Nazarbayev himself and of his modernization, economic modernization project. And also Almaty, obviously, as a second, as the largest city, became kind of like an economic hub. And unfortunately, currently, it's completely looted and destroyed in the city center. But yes, it, there was a relative, you know, kind of like um, relative stable development, but recent uh, economic crisis, and I would say economic mismanagement in, uh, in terms of governance have caused uh, all of these grievances and, and inequalities on the ground. Yeah. Well, Steve, let me let me turn it to you because, I mean, that Diana's given us a kind of, you know, very good pricey of its development writ large. But I mean, you you worked for one of the world's leading NGOs, human rights monitors on the ground in Kazakhstan for several years. This is a dictatorship, right? With a, a history of gross human rights abuses. I mean, describe to me 
even if we're just being kind of speculative or, or hypothetical about what would transpire under the circumstances of, as we've discussed, a peaceful protest movement now commingled with criminality and violence and possibly some paramilitary element. This is not something that's going to end with a peaceful reconciliation. I mean, you had the president of the country basically saying, shoot to kill to his security forces, and now indeed to elements that have been sent by essentially the Russian-led version of NATO, the CSTO. There's been reports that Russian paratroopers from the 45th Guard Spetsnaz are in Almaty already. There's a lot I want to unpack with you about sort of Russia's role in this conflict, uh, such that it, at least so far, and also what this will mean for the region. But give us a sense from your own experience. This is not a place where you can really get out on the street and demand democratic reforms without facing some pretty serious and severe consequences, right? Absolutely. And and. First, let me just thank Diana for her unparalleled expertise. And I, and I completely wholeheartedly endorse you know, her persistent, it's very important on Twitter to see this as well, this distinction that she's making and others uh, between peaceful protesters and these other elements, and also looking at the differences between what's happening in the West and in Almaty. But absolutely, I mean, we can use the word nightmare, disaster, crisis, emergency. From a human rights perspective, this is absolutely a nightmare scenario. And so many of the long-standing, long-simmering human rights abuses that we've seen from politically motivated imprisonments and the restrictions on freedom of assembly and really excessive and brutal, increasingly brutal force in breaking up peaceful protests over the past five years and more and and 10 years and even longer in, in Kazakhstan. I think this situation, it brings to the fore all of these incredibly egregious human rights abuses. So I think at the moment, the primary concern for, for folks in the human rights community are, you know, we, we have thousands of detentions so far and arrests that we've heard of, at least dozens of civilians killed, although, as Diana said, such an inform- with such an information blackout, we don't exactly know it could grow. There's been official reports of between 24 and 26, I have to look again, of uh, law enforcement personnel being killed. And of course, this really worrying rhetoric that we're seeing very Putin style of, and even Ramzan Kadyrov coming in today or yesterday speaking about liquidation, bandits, all these really worrying term, uh, terminology that is foreboding, not just foreboding because this is already happening, but we're seeing a crackdown in Kazakhstan that is is on a crescendo. And it, it, it's incredibly worrying. I just got some news that some of the labor union leaders that have been, and, and lawyers have been involved in helping the trade unions and the strikers in the West organize themselves ever since Jean Azen 10 years ago when we had, or 11 years ago when we had then unprecedented strikes that were put down with brutal force and led to dozens of deaths, those labor leaders uh, disappeared today. And some of our activists in the labor union uh, movement have not heard from them. I'm very concerned about political activists, human rights defenders. And then, of course, today, President Takayev, in a very tough-talking speech, used language about independent media that was not just dismissive, but dangerous, painting the whole notion of dialogue as naive. And so I think this is all really pointing to a human rights crisis that's unprecedented. As Diana said, Kazakhstan always distinguished itself as being the success story in quotes, you know, not the Turkmenistan, not the Tajikistan in terms of, or Uzbekistan in terms of an abysmal human rights record. But in fact, my first experience on the ground there for Human Rights Watch was witnessing how our organization then was denied 
the ability to register an office. And that was way back in 2010, 2011. So yeah. these issues of civic freedoms have been brewing for a long time. And I think they've led us, unfortunately, inexorably to this situation where you had discontent uh, meeting with this, you know, and I'm sure, Michael, you followed this increasingly opulent corruption uh, of the Kazakh elite, especially those around Nazarbayev and his family in Washington, in Dubai, in Geneva, and all of that sort of coming together in these terrible events over the past few days. So you're, what you're saying is the Oliver Stone portrayal of Nazarbayev leaves something to be desired, <laughs> Steve, huh? No, well, I, I want to, I know, you know, kind of geopolitics and and sort of the regional or, or, or neighborhood dynamics isn't really your purview, but I, I have to ask you, there are three relationships here that I'm very interested in. I think all we all are. Number one, the relationship with Washington. I mean, as I mentioned, this is a country that the U.S. has maintained relatively good ties with. During the war in Afghanistan, we were requiring military bases in Kazakhstan, I believe, and then sort of uh, pass through or fly through rights uh, in order to resupply troops and, and so on and so forth. Obviously, the oil industry is in big consideration for not just the American government, but American private enterprise, um, Exxon, et cetera. And then the two other countries that seem to have pretty big stake in, in, in what happens internally are China and Russia, right? Chinese money has poured into this country, largely responsible, I think, for a lot of the um, development and kind of refurbishment, particularly in the capital. And Russia is, of course, now in a bit of a sticky wicket. We've spent the last, what, two, three months obsessing over whether or not Vladimir Putin will reinvade Ukraine, given the enormous military buildup at the border. And obviously, these overtures now with the United States about uh, putting the kibosh on any further NATO expansion and reconsidering the post-war or post-Cold War European order. What does this do to, I mean, or as best you can tell, what, what does this do to the Kremlin's best laid plans with respect to Ukraine? Is this going to be a distraction for Putin? Is this going to be another opportunity for Putin to say, aha, you see, this is exactly what I've been warning about since 2004. Whenever there's any kind of quote unquote color revolution or some kind of popular uprising in a former Soviet territory, the, the long arm of the State Department and the CIA and NATO is, is always there, right? I mean, will this furnish yet another opportunity for him to preach this gospel of a need for the Moscow or Russian security umbrella, not just in Eastern Europe, as we've been talking about lately, but all over the, the FSU? Mm -hmm. Where do you see this? Let's take capital by capital, sure. Washington, Beijing. Sure. Well, I mean, well, maybe we should start with Russia because it's by far the biggest player here. I, I think sure. obviously this is still early developing and we have no idea how long this CSTO mission will go on. And will these Russian troops, when they're on the ground, will they, will they ever leave? I saw that question asked by a former U.S. ambassador um, with great alarm um, a few hours ago uh, on social media. So there, there are a lot of questions. And, and of course, at, at the beginning, I think, and, and I'm very curious to hear what Diana has to say about this, I think, of course, back to 1986 and how the Jaltoksan riots, which were a very important uprising, or I shouldn't say riots, but the, the uprising um, in relation to uh, the Kremlin's tone deaf move to place an ethnic Russian in charge of Kazakhstan in 1986 led to, um, you know, incredibly important events that that 
contributed to the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, and, and that, you know, just reminds us how much, and I don't want to say Kazakh nationalism because it's too overly simplistic, but this idea of Russian troops, uh, so-called peacekeepers in Kazakhstan is, it's really introducing a very unpredictable, risky, and, and widely unpopular from what I can tell in terms of Kazakh civil society and the Kazakh diaspora. I mean, there may, there may be some support for that coming from other sectors that, that Diana could talk about, but I think just the mission itself it's a controversial move. And of course, some have speculated that Takayev would not have asked for this were he not sort of existentially threatened or his position not existentially threatened. Lots of talk of a palace coup or people close to Nazarbayev trying to unseat him. It's, it's, it's again, very too early to speculate on all this. But I think what we do see is for the first time in this region, the CSTO acting in a way that it hasn't in other situations. I remember I was based in Kyrgyzstan around the time of the Osh events, the ethnic conflict that was tearing up the country in 2010. CSTO was requested to come. They did not. We also had a request made by, in this more recent conflict that erupted just last year between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, a request for the CSTO to send a mission, and they declined. We also had just quite, quite recently in the Caucasus Armenia asking the CSTO to come, and, and they decline, and yet it's Nicole Pashinyan that comes out with the statement that this uh, peacekeeping force will be sent. And, and just, just to interrupt you, I mean, isn't, isn't the, the, the original charter that CSTO forces do not get deployed unless one of the member states is attacked by an external force? And that only seems to contribute to this kind of conspiratorial notion that this is all being whipped up from abroad, right? This is not an internal political situation. This is something that foreign actors are responsible for. Right, which is, again, part of that, as you said in the very beginning of the podcast, incredibly worrying language. Yeah. And again, I, from a human rights perspective, Putin increasing his footprint, his influence, his power in in Kazakhstan and in other parts of Central Asia, I mean, with this deployment, you will now have Russian troops on the ground in Tajikistan, in Kyrgyzstan, in Kazakhstan. Um, the only place you won't have them is uh, Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. It, it's very worrying, I guess, from a purely, you know, from the perspective of sovereignty, that worries a lot of a lot of actors, uh, most importantly, Kazakhs themselves. But if you ask me to move to Washington just really quickly, I think that sovereignty idea is in, probably incredibly worrisome to Washington. And in terms of the oil contracts and the, and the incredibly influential business relationships, that, that's an open question. But I do think that all this unrest and all this discontent and, and the most important, you know, what this all began from, the discontent, the socioeconomic inequality, the corruption, I think what that should be leading Washington to do is to start thinking about corruption, about global Magnitsky sanctions against very corrupt and bad actors in the Kazakh elite. Um, but we, we can get to that a little bit later. But in terms of Washington, I think the response has been muted. It's been cautious. And there's been general language coming from Tony Blinken about dialogue and, and respecting freedom of assembly. But I think that's far from what we need. We need much more robust calls for human rights protection, support for civil society. That needs to be private, but it also needs to be public in my view. 
And I mean, do you think that that reluctance is just international relations fatigue at, combined with a sense of not upsetting the apple cart of America's relationship with the current regime? And also, you know, hey, we, we just spent the last three months trying to resolve the Ukraine or the impending Ukraine crisis. Why We don't need this on our plate, too. Or is there something else afoot there? I think part of that is is the unfortunate reality that foreign policy towards Central Asia has always been a little bit of an afterthought in D.C. It's always played second fiddle to Afghanistan. And, and to some degree, I think that's why the policy seems at times lazy and not very coherent. But I think you're right. I think there's a lot of worry about, about upsetting the apple cart, about maintaining good ties with Tokayev, who appears in these recent events, just in the last 24, 48 hours, to have firmed up his position and you know is sort of moving into taking the reins, although obviously that could change any time. Yeah. Deanna, I mean, you study kind of the post-Soviet states uh, with a focus on Central Asia. I mean, let me ask you something. Steve just gave you the number of countries that have got Russian, I I think they're all in in, in most cases, or if not all, characterized as, quote, peacekeeping forces. In the history of the, since the, the, the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, has Russia deployed peacekeeping forces to any country that you know of, which it has then withdrawn from that country? Or are they, once they're there, they basically never leave, right? Well, they, it, it, it's a gray area in terms of like, you know, what language is used. Um, and we can go back to like, you know, some of the, of some of the places like is Transnistria in Moldova, is that a withdrawal? Uh, that's a gray area. Okay, Crimea is annexed. Uh, what about Georgia in 2008? Technically withdrawn, but taking something with them. There's always this, this this very interesting kind of like contextual language with, with Russian, you know, interventions when they do that. And in any given case, it's always like, you know, it seems to be that, that people can compare it and so on. And, and I know there are some fantastic comparative works on that. Ellie Knott, a scholar from LSE and a colleague is, is publishing a book soon uh, comparing Moldova and Crimea, for example, which is absolutely interesting. But, um, you know, to me, I think I would say that this language of intervention and then leaving or not leaving is very distinct in, in each context and in, in, in each case. And every time it, it plays out according to a different scenario, although usually it's, it's about, you know, the rights of Russian speaking population and so on and so forth, as we've seen in Crimea. But um, if you look at almost every post-Soviet public, uh, I've done my work in, in, in Baltics as well, and I've, and I've done quite a lot of historical approach to uh, Baltic-Russian relations. There was a you know a very distinct approach to each state in the Baltic uh, in, in the Baltic region that, that Russia and how they approached the transborder disputes with Latvia, for example, was a distinct issue. Uh, Lithuania was kind of a bit of a slag because because they didn't implement the citizenship laws that that didn't like, you know uh, that didn't include Russians and so on and so forth. But if you look almost at every single case in the post-Soviet space that Russia engaged with in one way or another, through foreign policy, through specific interventionist language and so on and discourse, and even through implementation or, or, or introduction of the troops. In every single case, I think it's, it's a very distinct type of discourse that they build, build their relationship with. And I think, uh, yeah, in my opinion, I read it as a political sociologist. I think it's, it's very distinct. But to your answer, I would try to answer it not as yes or no, but rather as it depends. And in every single case, they present it very differently. But yeah, I, I think in that sense, Transnistria is one of the most interesting cases. Did it? Did Russia really withdraw? What happened there? Like, you know, we're living for more than 20 years in this ambiguous situation, more, well, more than um, almost 30 years now. And Moldova is also living in this super ambiguous situation, sort of like, you know, what is this republic that is not recognized by anybody but uh, Russia and some other, like, you know, unrecognized republics? So I think it's a very interesting um, language. I think it's a very interesting 
I hope somebody will write that book as sort of like, you know, just Russia's, I wouldn't say foreign policy, but like, you know, intervention policy in the post-Soviet space and elsewhere as well. What we're seeing in Syria, what we're seeing in um, certain African states. It's a very, some people call it hybrid war. It's not always about war. It's definitely some sort of intervention, intervention of discourse that is very interesting to conceptualize further. Well, I mean, you know, one of the debates that that everyone seems to be having these days and, you know, largely driven by Putin's rhetoric and and some of the noises he's been making about unsettled business from the 1991 period or 1998 to 91 period. Is he looking to restore some version of the Soviet empire? Or as my friend Owen Matthews argued in, in New Lines magazine this week, is he simply channeling the nostalgia for Russian greatness and grandeur as a way to essentially you know, sell to the Russian population that their mediocre lot in life compared to what used to be is something that they should resent. And it's it's not because of internal problems or faulty leadership, but it's because of Western designs and, and conspiracies. Um, Steve, why don't I, I mean, I know you, you've kind of like hopped around as well in the former Soviet sphere. I, obviously, look, if we consider what's happened in, in Kazakhstan to be an entirely internal thing without any kind of foreign provocation or, or much less masterminding. It doesn't seem like this is something Putin wanted or, or expected or had any hand in precipitating. However, an opportunity now arises. What are you going to do? If you're going to send in forces that will probably never leave. You're also, I mean, as Diana, you pointed out, it's not really just about warfare or hybrid warfare. There's a lot of influence peddling and sort of creeping forms of state and economic capture. Mm-hmm. It, having studied and, and sort watched Putin over now yeah 20 plus years what do you what do you make of his calculation in, in the most recent period I think like a lot of us I saw Margarita Simonyan's tweet about the conditions that the Kremlin should advance um, to, to the Kazakh government in in exchange for you know saving them and it was it was incredibly troubling what she listed there was very clear she said that Kazakhstan should recognize Crimea as part of Russia, yeah. Kazakhstan should. Um, and there are a number of things, but one that I definitely paid attention to was expel, liquidate, close NGOs, independent NGOs. Mm. And so I, I think that certainly worries me, again, from a, from a perspective of just, we're what, a week, 10 days out from the liquidation and the closure of the most important human rights organization in the history of post-Soviet space, Memorial, December 28th and December 29th. Yeah. But watching that tragedy unfold in Moscow in the courtroom, not in the courtroom, but watching watching what was happening there from afar, there's a lot of despair, a lot of worry about, again, with this increased Russian presence, footprint, whatever form it takes. And I think Diana is absolutely right that it depends. We don't know what will happen. But I think in any case, this the Kazakhstan's, whatever we're going to call it, loss of sovereignty or the end of its multi-vector foreign policy or it's the increased footprint of Russia, I think, is bound to, we've seen what this does. We've seen how it affects human rights and civil society and media freedom. And so, you know, we, we can go from the emergency phase right now, which we've seen of internet blackouts. And I should mention, of course, also just the humanitarian catastrophe of people being cut off from bank machines, unable to, to get food, um, you know, really terrible messages. I've seen people unable to get to the hospital, lots of humanitarian needs, but we can go from that sort of emergency phase to a darker, longer crackdown in Kazakhstan's society as a whole. And I, I really hope that that doesn't happen. But I, mean, I think that's one of the big implications for me from the peacekeeping force, no matter how 
big or small it is or how long it lasts. It's this idea that democracy, and I may sound increasingly naive <laughs> as a human rights defender, but that democracy is, is, as we know, it's under threat in the West. And, and we're talking about that, obviously, right now in the U.S. a lot. But it's very much our responsibility, I think, to look at the frontline defenders, those peaceful, peaceful protesters in Almaty and those strikers in Western Kazakhstan and, and the rest of the country, and think about their voices and how could the international community in this environment in which Putin is increasingly assertive, how do we support them? And what is the foreign policy that gets us to a, a situation of even just responding to this emergency for human rights? I think I'm, I'm really grappling with that. And I look at the fact that there's been no real statement or engagement coming from the organizations that should be acting more quickly, like the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. So you know, we have the CSTO doing its thing, but we need to have those institutions that talk the talk of, of values and democracy doing more. Another one would be, guess where Kazakhstan is a member right now? Well, they, they were recently, this is awkward, uh, elected to the Human Rights Council of the United Nations. <laughs> and so <laughs> shouldn't the UN Human Rights Council urgently address this situation and make some recommendations. I think they should. So, you know, that may seem like very cold comfort or anticlimactic for those that are seeking real solutions. Of course, the OSCE and the UN, I know, are not panaceas, but there needs to be really um, a recognition that democracy, human rights, and and especially in the former Soviet space, is really on the march backwards. As, as you just said, Michael, this revisionism, nostalgia for the pre-1991 status quo is it's certainly real in Putin's mind. And, and something has to be done on, on many levels to address that. We don't have much time, unfortunately, but let me put to you a final question. I mean, there's revisionism in Putin's mind and a sort of a the historiography of how the Cold War ended is something that's hotly debated all the time by the West and, and certainly by Russians. But, you know, with respect to Kazakhstan, what did the United States perhaps or just the, the the broader, I hate this term international community, but fine, you know, the, the, the kind of community of democracies. What did it get wrong about Kazakhstan beginning um, with the collapse of the Soviet Union? What, what might it have done differently? I mean, Steve, you know, you're a human rights defender. It doesn't seem like the United States really put that much of a premium on human rights over more strategic realpolitik interests wherever in the world. From your point of view as experts, I mean, how might we have borne some responsibility for allowing this kind of dictatorship to take root to, net, to such a point that now we're seeing we don't even know the, the true extent of the gross human rights abuses taking place because of the blackout? Let's kind of be a little self-critical to coin a phrase. Diana, what do you think? Well, I, I guess I need to give the floor to, to um, Steve because he's the American. No, that's fine. I, I always encourage um, criticism of the United States by non-Americans, <laughs> especially these days. Okay. Well, I think, um, I don't know about like, you know, what could have U.S. have done, like, you know, in terms of intervening or pushing more because uh, I've seen in the past that, uh, you know, this, this intervention from, from certain international organizations like OIC has been taken quite allergic in a logic matter. In, in my latest book, I actually do write about it. And quite ironically, I cited Kassim Jomar Tokayev's book uh, and, and like, you know, and how he responded to some of the criticism from OEC <laughs> and he was really happy. And then, of course, when I was writing the book, I had no idea he'll become president. And then um, when it was literally my, my final edits and sending it to, to the print and uh, everything happened. I had to literally like, you know, well, I didn't change much, but I had to add so, certain things and so on. But I would say, I, I would take, 
the idea of the post-Cold War uh, discourses. And I think it's it's very important because what happened in the post-Cold War, kind of like divisions into who are the winners and who are the losers, I think in general, the whole post-Soviet space became highly neglected as this kind of like, you know, former superpower, but now kind of like um, the backyard of God knows what, maybe not the third world, but definitely something super neglected and not very interesting. And that the legacies of that kind of like neglect neglect and um, marginalization have led to what we have now when people are literally like, you know, trying to find out how to go, uh, how to pronounce the name of the president of this country. Right. Is Kazakhstan not Kyrgyzstan? Is it not Uzbekistan? And so, like, you know, very insulting, but also very kind of like uh, last minute hasted uh, issues that, like, you know, and also, as everybody's saying, like, you know, whoever is an expert in Russia all of a sudden becomes an expert in Kazakhstan. But these things are very distinct. And I think for me, um, in my, you know, uh, line of work, I, I clearly see this, this sort of marginalization and this neglect of this particular region, post-Soviet or Central Asia, led to the fact that there are so many people who actually have no idea what's going on. They don't know, they need to constantly contextualized. I spent a lot of time speaking to people, literally giving um, certain context and history to what has happened because certain, I mean, and, and I, I can't blame these journals. Like, you know, they don't know what happened. They they didn't have time to look into it. And, and I hope that this example of what happened in Kazakhstan will bring back this sort of like, you know, re, re, certain revision and certain critical perspective on the fact that, yes, the Soviet Union collapsed, but it doesn't mean that this whole region, like, you know, stopped existing. It has importance. It has, like, you know, it's developing and it has implications for for wider region and, and it shouldn't be neglected in, in, anymore. Uh, you know, people should be paying attention to Kazakhstan and making distinctions that Kazakhstan is very different from neighboring Kyrgyzstan uh, and very different from neighboring Uzbekistan that are also key players in, in the region in general. And not just paying attention to Russia because there's so much attention on Russia. But Russia cannot be, in my opinion, understood without the context and without the the wider Eurasian context in which it exists. And Kazakhstan is a huge part to that. So that's why we need to understand, I mean, if you want to understand what's going on in this huge territory, this huge region of the world, you have to understand it from, yeah, from, from very detailed and in-depth approach and give it more voice and space. So I, I take it that Sasha Baron Cohen's uh, portrayal of the country is is probably not a good thing in, in in the American popular cultural imagination. I mean, look, I'll be honest with you. We're, we're at a point now where I, I doubt even Americans, you know, can a good percentage of them know the name of their own president at this point. In fact, many of them don't even acknowledge the president to be the president. So, you know, to to expect them to to know how to place a Central Asian country anywhere on the map is I, I perhaps too heavy of a lift at this point. But, but to, yeah. to, to that, just quickly, I have yeah. a, a recent anecdote. I was writing this, this piece that I gave to, to my American colleague to read it. It was a piece comparing Russia and Kazakhstan in terms of liberalism. Uh, and I was conceptualizing a liberal kind of like mechanism. And she came back to me saying, oh my God, it sounds so much like the US. And I said, well, that's why we need to study and pay more attention to what's going on in other contexts so that <laughs> we can compare and understand each other more, you know? You know, honestly, I, I was, for my own book, I was reading about the purges again, uh, which I haven't done in, in many, many years. And I came across sort of this um, rather sort of self-abasing, you know, groveling to Stalin after a military commander had been sent to Lubyanka. And then I opened Twitter and I saw Ted Cruz basically doing the same thing to Tucker Carlson, <laughs> begging forgiveness and, and, you know, welcoming back to Holy Mother 
church. Look, it used to be kind of a, a, a kind of guiding principle of mine not to traffic in moral equivalence because I thought it was tawdry and it also historically illiterate, but it, you, you can almost not escape doing so now, right? The situation has become so so dire. Uh, Steve, you know, where did we go wrong? What what should we have done perhaps in, in the late 80s, early 90s in terms of not just raising greater awareness of, you know, the importance of these countries or this country, let's say Kazakhstan, but, you know, investing in sort of the human capital and democratization schemes. Yeah, no, and I was just, uh, I was trying to find a parallel to La Renti Beria in U.S. politics as you were speaking. Sorry, uh, Michael. Uh, but uh, yes, there's a lot to be said. I was looking recently again at a chart of Kazakhstan's trading relationships, and the European Union is something like 29% of its trade, a lot more than I think we think about when we have these conversations about Russia and China, the U.S. not so significant compared to the EU as a trading partner. Partner, but when I'm going down the list again of thinking of who can do what, and yeah, as a human rights activist, uh, constantly thinking about what are this, what pieces of leverage are there now to to improve the situation. And I think obviously, from my perspective, one of the great failings of the West's approach, both the U.S. and the EU, a lot of different players, is just failing to insist on principled or conditional approaches to what was actually happening. So we've seen for a long time, as we've been discussing all week, watching this happen in Kazakhstan, that little by little, not so much little by little, but that we had assassinations, arbitrary detentions, a whole raft of legislation introduced over years and years and years to curtail the civic space, closure of media outlets, brutal crackdowns in 2016, then 2019, unprecedented protests. So there's been a long time, I think, for the foreign policy community to sit back and say, okay, it's time to set conditions. It's time to speak loudly, call out the arrests of activists, make that both in private and in public. And I think a lot of things happen here with relation to Central Asia. I think we can't underplay or dismiss the significance of this paradigm shift that occurred after 9-11 and this approach to the area as a military launching point for Afghanistan and also um, directed at early points in the war on terror cooperation with some of the for some of the regimes in Central Asia to interrogate suspects. Um, that was more Uzbekistan than it was Kazakhstan. But this militarization, this viewing of the world through that war on terror lens was incredibly detrimental and really took the world. One could argue that we're still on that path, but certainly far away from the idea that foreign policy emanating from the West was about promoting democracy and human rights in, in Central Asia and in the post-Soviet space. So I think that was a major failing. There was this other moment I remember, 2010, when Kazakhstan wanted to host the OSCE chairmanship. And there was a lot of discussion that if we could incentivize, or if the West could incentivize Nazarbayev, sort of offer that chairmanship, that would might, again, he, there would be some pledges about democratic reform, registration of NGOs. And guess what? Kazakhstan took that, took the glory, took the limelight. I remember that event. And human rights only suffered after that. So I think the lesson is that you have to be principled and there should be conditionality. And the good news, again, is coming back to what I was saying earlier, that now we have more tools. Now that we know that Kazakhstan's corruption and this incredible theft that, that Nazarbayev and his close associates and others have engaged in, it means that we can freeze those assets. It means that we can deny visas to those officials that still want their kids to study in elite universities in the West or come to the West. 
we can reform Interpol to make these politically motivated red notices that the Kazakh government also dabbles in, not just Russia, but Kazakhstan too, we can put an end to that now. There, we can also use Magnitsky sanctions to really pinpoint uh, officials that are involved in practices of torture. And it has to be stated, torture is endemic in prisons in Kazakhstan. So we, have a, we do have the tools at our disposal. And we also can say that the globalized corruption of Kazakhstan is, is significant, that it affects the West, that it occurs in the West. There have been some great reporting by Open Democracy about the UK as a haven for Kazakh assets. My friend uh, Casey Michelle writes a lot about this. And so a lot of activity and I think a lot of tools in foreign policy. So that's very relevant to, I know, the discussion about Russia and responding to the human rights crackdown there, but also for Central Asia. And I just want to maybe end with saying that, you know, recently a, a dissident poet in Kazakhstan, who, whose case I followed for a long time, died. He was in prison for 18 years. His name was Aron Atabek. And, and Michael, when we saw the photos of, of after his release, what he looked like, he was emaciated. He looked like a Holocaust survivor. He later died shortly thereafter, but he was essentially tortured to death by a government. And I think that was, to me, it was a stark reminder that we failed, those in the human rights community, to really enact consequences, policy consequences for human rights abuses. And so I hope that part of the lesson of this week will, you know, amidst all the worry about Russia and the geopolitics, that there will be some reckoning with the failure to hold true to some values of democracy and human rights in the approach to Central Asia. Okay. Well, we've run out of time, but um, look, this is not a, a situation that's going to go away overnight. And uh, unfortunately, what will happen is the news cycle will move on from it, but we won't at Foreign Office. So um, it'll be great to have you guys back to discuss Kazakh politics and the human rights situation uh, as it unfolds after this latest crisis. You have been listening to Foreign Office. My guest this week, uh, Steve Swerdlow, a human rights lawyer and a former representative of Human Rights Watch in Kazakhstan. And D Diana Kudabergenova. Sorry if I've butchered that. I, I had it right at least two or three times already. So my apologies. Um, who is a political sociologist based in Cambridge and a scholar of post-Soviet democracies and non-democracies with a book that's coming out. Diana, what's the name of the book that, that we can expect on Kazakhstan? Well, well, that would depend on what my editor comes back with, but it's basically about the protests after uh, Nazarbayev's resignation. It is it, The protests themselves were called uh, the Kazakh Spring, but it's getting like, you know, a very negative response right now and in, in terms of the, as a concept. And the spring in the sense that it's the Prague Spring, the, the activists I spoke to did not intend to to make another Arab Spring in Kazakhstan. It was all about structural change. But hopefully, yeah, it will be, it, I don't know what will be the title yet, uh, what we'll decide in the coming days. But yeah, hopefully it will be about uh, the post-2019 protests. Okay, so title TK. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you so much, both of you, for, for joining us this week. Thanks, Michael. 